This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 581. And the quote of the day is, good players win races, great ones break records, legends change the game. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 581, and the time has finally come that we get the legendary Steve Jordan on the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I have been obsessed with Steve Jordan's playing since I was in college, and that was a long time ago, and have have always wanted him wanted him on the podcast. He has been on the top three of my bucket list to get on the podcast. Carter Beauford, Steve Gadd, and Steve Jordan. I got Steve Gadd, and now we got Steve Jordan waiting on the Carter Beauford one. But if you've been living under a rock and don't know who Steve Jordan is, I recommend just Googling him. The, the amount of things that he's done in his career, all the way from starting at 19 years old playing in the Saturday Night Live band. He was, on, he was in the Dave Letterman band. He's played with the Stones and the expensive winos with Keith Richards. He's produced with John Mayer. and I mean, he's, he's done everything. And not only that, he has this groove and this feel that I think we all as drummers are trying to achieve. And it's really interesting. He talks about his approach of how and why he developed his feel and the way that he plays. And it's really interesting to hear him explain it and and talk about a lot of his influences. And this is a wide ranging conversation that to me is like a pot of water that we're trying to boil. And it starts off a little slow when we start to get into the conversation. And by the end, it is a bubbling cauldron of of information and Steve is just breaking it down and and really sharing so much information about the education system, about how beneficial it was for him growing up and learning music, all the way to sound and production and how he was overplaying when he was younger and changed his style and what he listens for in tunes and and his approach when playing and what he does in the studio and it's all in here. And I couldn't be happier and more proud of not only getting him on the podcast, but the fact that he would even come on to this podcast to share this knowledge. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it with the legendary Steve Jordan. Jordan, how are you? All right, how you doing, Nick? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for for being here. You have been a lifelong inspiration for me behind the kit. So to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you is is amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. One of the things that always sticks out to me was everything I've read about you and you talk about. You talk about 
all of the support that you had as a young kid growing up playing playing music how important was that that support that you had because i think that we we often look over all of the other people who uh who help us get to where we are but but you had that support from an early early age i am so fortunate i had so much support um first of all i had incredible parents and then i had incredible grandparents and uncles and aunts and people, teachers, uh, not only my public school teachers, my music teach, you know, music school teachers, my private lesson teachers, um, just, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, people who are active in the community, who were role models. Um, and there was always music around to bolster uh, everybody's spirits. So, um, uh, I just, you know, I can't tell you how really lucky and fortunate and blessed I was and still am to have the kind of support that I've garnered. Well, I had Leroy Cloudon on a few weeks ago, who's a good buddy of yours, and he mentioned the same thing. He echoed the, the same sentiments about how important not only not only parents are but the programs that we have in schools and the programs that we have in the community and to me it seems like they are are falling by the wayside uh and as a result it seems to me that the arts don't seem to be valued as much as they used to be and i think it's it's creating this this cyclical effect what do you think about that well it's a long story but when Leroy and I, yeah, when Leroy and I were growing up in our neighborhood, the New York City school system was probably the best school system possibly in the world. I mean, definitely in the United States. Uh, and um, you went to school the first day of school, you came home with an instrument, whether it was a clarinet or a violin or a tuba or whatever. You came home with an instrument or a paintbrush or, or something to that effect. Because as we know, developing that side of your intellect and personality makes you a more complete person. So the development of one's artistic sensibility was very important in the overall structure of the curriculum of New York City schools. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, it was just, it wasn't like, oh, a luxury or something. It was something that had to happen. Um, so, um, and that helps you, you know, further develop one's sensibilities whether and, and how to deal with problems, especially trying to solve important problems and things outside the box. Um, and so that was really important. <clears throat> the attack on the arts started with the defunding of public schools and cuts to the arts. And it started in 
cutting music departments, cutting art departments. First, it would like it would start with the supplies. You know, all of a sudden, there are not enough instruments to go around. Then there are not enough art supplies. Then maybe they can't afford a couple of the music teachers. Maybe the music teacher gets cut, so on and so forth. And the federal government just started an assault on the arts in general, but it started with the school systems. Now, of course, mm -hmm. that's from the right, obviously, because um, that's where it is. That's why you see most of the time on the left, you have, you know, funding for things like the Kennedy Center and, you know, the National Endowment of the Arts, you know, so on and so forth. The list goes on and on. Public television, all of that stuff is, you know, uh, people who are proponents of, of the left, um, they fund. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things where the right doesn't feel like the development of the arts is an important thing. And it's, it should be cut like Social Security, <laughs> right, you know, right. and Medicare and everything else. And the U.S. Postal Service and, you know, you name it. Anything that's good for the, for the good of the people isn't necessary, you know. So that's what we have happening. And that's so it started years and years ago. We've been watching these cuts over decades. It started basically really started to really kick in in the 70s and it's just accelerated to the point where you know my sister was a school teacher she's retired now but she told me something so distressing that i i couldn't even believe it but it got to the point where if you were a school teacher you had to supply some of the arts materials to the students Oh, Another yeah, word. I know plenty of teachers that do that. Yeah. That's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. When she told me that, I thought she was putting me on. And then I said, no, no, really, you can't be serious. And then she said, Stephen, I'm serious. I have to buy the cray paper. I'm buying the manila thing. I'm buying the paper. I said, that's crazy. That's yeah. insanity. She said, yes, that's what we have to do now. Now, that is just, they, teachers don't get paid enough in the first place. I agree. I agree. Now they're expected to, to supply the students with materials and, and programs that the, the government doesn't want to fund. It's just the most outrageous. You can't, it, it's... You know, it's really unspeakable, really. Uh, it it's, is. You know, but, it's mind-boggling. But it's so mind-boggling. It's, it's just pure insanity is what mm -hmm. it is. And you see the, the effects of how, of, or you see the benefits of, of having a good teacher, right? Or having multiple the, good teachers. Not only do you have uh, the, the um, you see that the benefits are very clear, but what I'm saying is the development of, the artistic side of one's personality and development as a complete human being is extremely important. I'll give you a story. So a friend of mine is uh, the vice president at the time. He's now the 
chief of Washington, bureau chief at CNN, but back then he was a VP over at MSNBC. And we're in Washington, and we went to the White House uh, um, the the uh, correspondence dinner, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think it was Obama's first or second correspondence dinner. I think it was his first. Anyway, it was pretty well. And uh, <clears throat> during the day, there were some some gatherings. There was an MSNBC party, and there was uh, this party and that party. So I'm at this MSNBC party, and I'm talking to Andrea Mitchell. And uh, and she says, "Oh, let me introduce you to my husband," because they, you know, found out I was a musician and blah 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 through my friend. And I didn't know this at the time, but she was married to Alan Greenspan. Mm-hmm. And all Alan Greenspan ever wanted to be was, you know, Woody Herman, you know. Huh. And, 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 you know, it's just because, you know, so he just wanted to be a jazz clarinetist. You know, he, you know, he ends up being the most powerful man in finance in the world. Yeah, he was the head of the Fed, right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but all he wants to do is play jazz, you know. So, I mean, I said, well, look, I got to take you in the studio. We got to make a record. I mean, come on. <laughs> but the thing is. Look what that did to him. His love for music and his ability to play led him to think about certain ways to kind of develop financing and to move our fiscal systems along. And I can tell you, I was not a very good math student until I started reading music. Hmm. And when I started reading music, my math skills uh, leaked. And That's my crazy. mother, yeah. And so but, so, but that makes total sense. Don't you understand? Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. So why wouldn't you develop a part of one's personality that can help you be a more well-rounded person? I think that most people who have a closed-minded approach to life, which leads to a very... Uh, kind of tribal view of politics and ignorance about other people. And that's why there's so much distrust and, and racism and xenophobiaism and, and homophobiaism and you name it, because it's based on ignorance. Mm-hmm. If you don't develop, a, 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 you know, music is a universal language. What is the thing that, brings people together no matter what it's music mm-hmm. that's what's so ludicrous about like people on the right far right like you know turn around and liking the blues i mean how can you like the blues really right right you know i mean you don't have it you don't have you have no right to like the blues right if you don't like black people you know right. well what, what was there was you know there was a lot going <laughs> yeah. around on social media that was that was like love black people the way that you love black music Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, when, when Lee Atwater was doing his, uh, you know, when the late Lee Atwater, who was running the Bush campaign back in the day, when he, when he indulged in this kind of race baiting 
separatism that, you know, but which Trump is full on into now. And he would get up on stage and like play blues, you know, blues guitar with like B.B. King, our buddy guy, like he was their right. friend. I mean, it was like, it's, it's incredible. It's incredibly. Have you, know, have you ever been in a situation where you had to play a gig for an event, whether it be one side or the other, that you either felt like went against your ethics or what you believed in or, or that it was something that you just didn't feel, feel comfortable playing? Uh, I, yeah, but I, I have been able to rectify uh, the situation by a simple conversation. Like, hey, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I was playing the... Uh, I was doing the Grammys one year with Cheryl Crow. We were at Madison Square Garden and just we were doing the sound check. And, you know, I'm surveying the stage and I happen to see uh, the guitar player, Peter, nice cat and everything, really fine player. He had a little, like, magnet flag or whatever, a little plate a confederate plate on, on the front of his amp, you know. And I said, what's that? I said, I'm not playing a single thing until you remove that from the amplifier. Hmm. And he had no idea because, you know, these when you don't do the research, you think, oh, Southern rock, man, that's all. He didn't mean, he, this guy is not a racist. He's a great right. guy. But he didn't, you know, it's it's like putting a swastika on front of a, a drum head, you know. Right, right. Oh, I, you know, and saying, you know, yeah. Oh, I, I love Jews. I, I didn't mean to do that. No, so you don't get it. Right. That symbol means slavery. It means this flag wanted to uphold the thing that put me in bondage, just like a swastika upholds your hatred of Judaism. You know, like. That is, you, so you have to, you can't be ignorant of these things. You can't, you know, words mean something, symbols mean something, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and you have to be cognizant of other people's feelings. That's why being a great musician entails listening, you know, listening and knowing about what you're doing, not just doing something for the heck of doing it. Right. I'm not playing just for the heck of playing. I'm playing because maybe I can make a difference somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned you mentioned all the time about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and that making you want to play drums and be a musician. What was what was it about? And I've heard I've heard many people cite that particular performance. What was that? What, what did that do for you? Or what was it that made that stuck out so much that made you want to play drums after that? Well, the band was incredible. The seeing them on television, the whole phenomenon other thing i'm looking at a picture of ringo now um my friend troy germano gave me of at shea stadium i'll show you the picture can you see it oh nice yeah from behind from the back yeah. yeah so i mean i was i started drawing pictures of ringo when i was about eight years old yeah, first I started with the logo. You know, you got to start mm -hmm. with the logo. Right. And then you build the kit. You know, you draw the kit. And then you try to draw, you know, my drawing. 
of bodies weren't really they were more like stick figures but i had the <laughs> mine are I still stick draw, figures so <laughs> i could i could draw the instruments that i was you know and yeah. the drums i had that but the but the people you know i you know i could do you know whatever but i it, they were they just they just mesmerized me like they mesmerized millions of people all over the world and um the music obviously was a huge part of it they had that thing and uh i had never heard anything that sounded like that before and i don't think a lot of people had yeah we know we know the roots of where it came from we know it came from jazz and blues and and rhythm and blues you know they'll be the first to tell you mm -hmm. you know and uh but um it had never come out sounding like that and uh i was at the right age to you know get into it hook line and sinker oh yeah tell you something i think you yeah, so it blew my mind. You know, just like when John Lennon said when he saw Elvis, it blew his mind. It was the same type of thing. I remember talking to Levon Helm one night at his place about the first time he saw Elvis. And when Levon was explaining to me what it was like, I could see Elvis in Levon's eyes as I'm looking in Levon's eyes and him telling me the story about him seeing Elvis at the Arkansas State Fair. And um, he was reliving the whole moment. And he saw that thing and Elvis hit the stage. It was like a wind blew like a tornado. It was like a hurricane or something. and. Uh, his life was changed from that point on and he knew what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. you know, and for you, there was no, no looking back, right? No plan B. No, you know, that's very funny. You know, my mother used to always say, you know, you need a plan. You need to have something to fall back on. I said to her, no, I, I, I don't, I don't need anything to fall back on. This is what <laughs> I'm going to do. It was just pretty bold, but only, you know, only an ignorant child would say something like that. Right. No, I wanted to be, <laughs> I really wanted to play second base for the New York Yankees. Mm -hmm. But when I knew that I wasn't going to grow to a certain uh, stature, you know, physically, I mean, I grew actually after I uh, made the decision that I wasn't going to go after being a baseball player, uh, <laughs> which is really funny. But um, now you're like, wait a minute. I didn't know I was going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really funny. But, his, you know, the funny thing is, so I'm doing Saturday Night Live, and uh, how old were you, you know, when, you, when a, you joined Saturday Night Live? Were you 19? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I um, and, and you know I'm a huge Yankee fan, and, and uh, so one uh, one night, uh, I think it was Goose Gossage and Willie Randolph come to the show. You know. Mm -hmm. And it's really wild because when I, when we first, when my dad and I first saw Willie Randolph come up, 
he had a level swing just like me. You know, I was always – I could always hit the ball right back up the middle, level swing. I had a brown bat. Willie Randolph came out, he had a brown bat. You know, all these kind of similarities. We kind of, at that age, kind of looked very similar, like we could have been brothers or something, you know, kind of wild kind of looks. So I always, when I saw Willie Randolph at the plate, I always saw myself at the plate. It was the kind of thing. And I, and awesome. I played second base and he played second base. So it was a very weird – kind of thing you know and um and i always wanted to play second base in my uh, when i was growing up uh, during the lean years of the yankees the second baseman was horace clark after bobby richardson retired and Bob, horace clark became the the second baseman and he was from the caribbean and my father's name was horace so you know like second base with the was yankees the thing. It was like yeah, it was yeah. the thing you know what i mean it's like so and I meet Willie briefly at the show, after the show, whatever. And uh, and he knows who I am because I'm the drummer. And he wanted to play drums, apparently, from my recollection. <laughs> of, course, of course. So it's kind of the craziest freaking thing, you know. But, yeah, you know, getting back to your original question, I just, um, I, I love music so much. And when I would get grounded, like, for instance, you know, and for me, grounded meant, like, I never did anything really bad or anything, you know, but I would come in late or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I would get grounded, you know, because I, you know, I was supposed to be home by 6 and I got in by 6.30, you know. Um, but my, when my parents stopped, they would say, okay, well, you can't go outside, but you can stay inside and you can still listen to music and work on music. So it was like, oh, well, that's not like punishment at all. This is great. <laughs> this is what I would have been you know, doing anyway. <laughs> this is what, you know, but it gave me an excuse to stay in and work on my stuff or else I would have been outside lollygagging. Right. You know, playing some stuff. Now I'm going, I can't go out, but I can, at least I, they're not taking the music from me. This is great. And I got even more into music and more into practicing. So it ended up working out, you know, it's kind of a bizarre thing. I had uh, a relative, uh, L.B. Dorsett, had advised my, my mom not to, punish me uh by taking the music away you know like you know that's amazing you know so and so and she's still alive today lb and uh, so shout out to lb dorset amazing yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned ringo being one of your idols the one thing that always sticks out about ringo to me is that people for some reason like dog him about his playing and 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 talk about like he wasn't that great of a player or this or that, which I totally disagree. Um, well, it's complete and utter ignorance on their part. That's all yeah, I have So to talk, say. speak to that a little bit. Cause I, cause I feel the well, same I mean, way that you, you do. We just don't know anything about music. You know, I mean, yeah. but, it, but, but what it does is it really, it highlights how there's so much kind of mis conceptions about what's important not only in music but in life mm -hmm. so it's all about this is what you people are so this is why we have a reality show guy as a president you know because people are so confused about what's important and what makes the situation that they that people will hang on to statements like you know Ringo's not good or they don't understand or whatever blah 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 
first of all, if you know anything about feel, you know that if Ringo wasn't playing the drums in that band, it would have a different feel. Mm -hmm. And you know about feel is the most important ingredient in the chemistry of a band. If you go through all the bands that have lost their original drummers, they've never been the same. Yeah. Yep. Led, Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, The Who. Now, the, the thing about The Who, and this is, you talk about coming full circle. Okay, so Keith Moon dies, Kenny Jones comes in, played great with another band, unbelievable, but when he joined his band, he's just not the right person for this band. Now, the only time the, the Who has sounded good since Keith Moon is with who? Zach Starkey, Ringo's yeah. son. Yep. Because with Zach Starkey, my brother has a feel mm -hmm. that he got from his dad. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so it's like now know, there's two Starkeys that, that have feels. Exactly. Okay. So, um, but, you know, you can go down, even like, like bands like Guns N' Roses, you know, I mean. Right. When Steve got fired or whatever the circumstances were, they never sounded the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the list goes on and on about bands, iconic bands. That's why when I was working with the Stones, and when I worked with the Stones, you know, I always insist that Charlie play. I mean, I had a, when I first started working with them in 85, um, Charlie was like, yo, man, I want you to play drums on this, this tune. And I said to him, look, man, as long as you're alive, I'm not playing drums on this tune. It's a Stones tune. Um, because as a fan, I would be so pissed off at, at myself. You know, <laughs> we're playing that I'm not going to do that. You know, like yeah. I'll play percussion with you. You know, we'll double up. You know, there's one tune I played bass drum and he played the rest of the thing, you know, whatever. But I will not play the drums. Um, now, there have been some great Stones, iconic Stones tracks that he did not play drums on. I mean, you can't always get what you want, you know. Uh, he did not play on that. Uh, uh, well, they had an incredible producer, right? Uh, Mr. Miller is uh, one of the great producers of our day. He did Spencer Davis group, he did Blind Faith, and uh, he uh, produced some of the funkiest Stone stuff, starting with Honky Tonk Woman, and he did, you know, Sympathy for the Devil and Can't Always Get What You Want. And he was a drummer as well. So he played drums on that tune. Uh, also, it's only rock and roll. I think Kenny Jones played drums on that. Hmm. Um, so there are songs that, but they were all friends, you know. So right, that right. was a whole thing, you know, and that's a different thing. And uh, uh, being the kind of producer... Miller was, 
you know, he wanted to get the thing across and he knew how to make the song work in the studio in particular. So, and if you listen to the drumming on You Can't Always Get What You Want, it's very unusual in, in its quirkiness. You know, if you really break down the, the playing, it's, it's, it, it's it, it, you know, it's wild. It's kind of, it's almost clumsy, you know. So um, it's very special, and it's the kind of thing that if that beat wasn't played like that, it, the record wouldn't sound the same. Right, right. You know, it, it has that kind of quality. Now I got to go um, back and take a, a second listen yeah. with uh, with those yeah. ears, or not a yeah. second listen, but another listen. I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You, you mentioned you mentioned feel with with all of these great acts and. And the thing that has always stuck out to me, as well as everyone who's ever heard you play, is your feel, your sense of time, your groove, your sonic selections. How did you develop that? And I know that it's such a it's such an open ended question, and it's a it's a tough question to answer. But you're you have an, uh, a defined sound that as soon as from note one you know that it's Steve Jordan it doesn't matter what you're playing on you could be playing on a desk it doesn't matter how did you develop your how did you develop that sound and that groove and that feel well I've been collecting records ever since I was a child mm-hmm. and uh, so like the first album I ever owned was like Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn, um, which Shelly Mann played drums on, mm-hmm. which I didn't know at the time. I actually owned the kit that Shelly Mann played. Nice. Uh, that kit uh, uh, that we're going, which is, I still can't believe it when I say it. I, uh, but it came to me. It's almost like after he passed, I ended up, you know, the guy who used to take care of his equipment ended up owning it and then it had the right dimensions that I liked and he told me he had it and then I and I bought it and the only other person who really would appreciate it who wanted to buy it who was offering uh, you know eight, 80 times the amount of money that I was offering was it was Char- Charlie Watts you know and but uh, I said hey Charlie <laughs> I said Charlie I'm buying a kit because you will just put it in storage and you'll never play it I'm actually using this kit and it is a great leady kit it's unbelievable. Nice. And it's actually been seen on one of his albums, on Shelly's album. It's a blonde natural wood kit. Yeah, so I have the kit. But anyway, the point is, is that I've been listening to recorded music since I, before I was able to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, not read music, but read. Right, right. <laughs> Period. So, um, so sounds, the way records sound, the way drums sound, I would get, before I had a drum, I, I got my first drum when I was eight years old. So I was getting sounds out of coffee cans and pots and all kinds of stuff or plastic this, you know. Not the, there weren't a lot of plastic items at the time, but, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of metal and this and that, you know, just getting sounds. Then I saw, I listened to the sound of the drums on Peter Gunn and that whole album. And then... 
you know, I was a big big Checker fan. I saw all those records. And then I fell in love with Motown. And in particular, the drums and bass of Motown, Benny Benjamin and James Jameson, mm-hmm. was basically a life-changing kind of thing. Um, which it was for a lot of people, including the Beatles, you know. Um, so, uh, which is the reason why they covered so many Motown songs, you know. They covered right. You Really Got a Hold On Me, Mr. Hey, Mr. Postman, you know. And, uh, but if you listen to the drum, I mean, drums on pop records never sounded like that before, and neither did the bass. You never even really heard the bass. If you listen to, like, blues records and stuff like that, you can... You can hear Willie Dixon a little, but you don't really hear the clarity of the bass. Also, you know, you hear this kind of thing that sounds like the rim, riding the rim of a drum on an old rock and roll record, but it's actually the fretboard of an upright bass. You hear that louder than the bass notes. Mm. Um, so when I started listening to, I guess one of my the first records, uh, well, one of my one actually it wasn't a Motown record. It was a an Acto record. Uh, was uh, Charlie Brown? I, I was a big fan of the Coasters and Yakety Yak and Charlie Brown. Those two records, I loved those two records as a, a young child. And then, uh, but then I, you know, records like uh, "Do You Love Me" by the Contours. You know, I mean that record really. Certain certain recordings give your body has a reaction to, you know, you have like goosebumps or your blood runs a different temperature or, you know, whatever. But there's a, a physical reaction. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of physical reactions from Motown records. And then I could always tell the difference between a Motown record and a record that was cut down south, like a Stax record or an Atlanta record that was cut down south, you know, you know, um, meaning in Memphis or in Muscle Shoals. Right. Uh, and I had some physical reactions to some of those records too, but more to the Detroit records. I didn't have as many physical reactions to some of the Chicago records, but a few of them did break through for me. Uh, like what uh, do you remember well some of the impressions records uh, you know the Curtis Mayfield and the impressions some of those records really touched me in a different way it was so it was like a gospel, the gospel overtone was there very classy but uh, and the rhythm sections almost had like a jazzy kind of a thing going and of course, you know, Ramsey Lewis and and and, and, and uh Maurice White, you know, playing together mm-hmm. and that sound coming out of there. Um but yeah, but the Motown records, the Funk Brothers were really the thing. And it's funny you mentioned Leroy earlier, you know, when Leroy and I like when we were in junior high school or something we decided to call ourselves the Funk Brothers, not knowing that the Motown rhythm section was called the Funk Brothers. Because, <laughs> you see, at the time, you know, the musicians never got any credit, right? right? They didn't start listening. They didn't start listening 
I think the first, the first album that Motown actually listed the musicians was a record, Stillwater Runs Deep, an album by the Four Tops. And that was the first time Motown ever listed the Sidemen on really? the record. So, so you never you, you never saw any Sidemen on the on the singles, obviously. Why didn't and they, they were uh, well, you, well, that, that wasn't the thing, you know. I mean, sometimes you listed, you know, musicians on jazz records, you know, because mm. you know the jazz audience wanted to know who was playing. Um, but in pop circles and R and B circles, you're just interested in the artist and the songwriter, the producer, whatever. You're not really interested in the session musicians. You don't even know. And, right. uh, and the, in fact, the musicians that were making the records weren't even interested in. <laughs> you know, they, they would go in, like, for instance, they'd be at the 20 Grand, right? So the Funk Brothers played the 20 Grand, which is the jazz club in Detroit. They'd come up with some great stuff that night and then end up bringing some of the stuff they jammed on you know, the night before into the studio the next day because they were only getting, you know, like 50 bucks each, you know, for the day's work. Now, mm -hmm. they didn't know that they were cutting maybe five, six number one records that day that would garner, you know, millions of dollars right. that they weren't going to get any of. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. Talk about inequities. Yeah. They, how, do you, guys, how do you approach that when you get hired, if you get hired on a session or something like that? Uh, and what you, what's your advice for that? Because it still happens all the time. People get hired to play on records and they just get paid, you know, 500 bucks and, and then they go home. Well, there's uh, work for higher contracts and then there are all kinds of things. You have to know your own worth. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, you're not going to get a royalty um the way you used to back in the day like uh, there used to be a thing called special recording fund check that we would get twice a year and the amount of uh airplay and record sales uh would be uh accumulated and then calculated into a breakdown of a share for the sidemen and it was a pretty sizable check back in the day when, when um, you know, radio was paying mm -hmm. what they're supposed to pay and records were selling. And so, you know, I mean, nobody sells millions of records anymore. No, in fact, nobody sells any records anymore. You stream the thing, you get some downloads. The, 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 the money made off a download is minuscule mm -hmm. so the whole money-making process which you know producers and songwriters were the canaries in the coal mine we were saying this 25 years ago like hello our zeros are disappearing our zeros are going right and nobody cared because the higher ups what they were doing besides making uh re reconstructing and renegotiating their contracts to get raises you know they uh it's just crazy they would repackage stuff you know and that's why they're like eight eighty versions of the best of 
you know, mm. because when it was a new format, it was, okay, we got to repackage this for this new format. Even yeah. if the format was only going to last for two seconds, you know, Shady. and, and that's how they would kind of try to generate money into the market, you know, by, yeah. uh, by, by reconfiguring, coming up with a new compilation. Maybe you go in and you get the tapes and remaster it making it sound worse than the original. Nothing mm. has sounded better, okay, than the originals, right. first of all. Right. You know, somebody goes in that didn't have anything to do with the project, goes in and remasters the thing, makes it sound too bright, brittle, whatever, and so all the charm of the record is gone, or they do some kind of remix and they had no idea about the music and they ruin it, you know, whatever. Right, right. And then they repackage it and put it out with some new liner notes and hope that it would sell, you know, and that's how they were justifying their new contracts and stuff like that. But our, our money has been uh, vanishing over the years, just diminishing mm -hmm. from year to year. So if you were getting my, into this industry now and you were 20 years old, how would you approach it differently or would you approach it differently? Well, probably at that. At, so what you do now is, you, it's all about social media. It has nothing to do with music, unfortunately. Um, if you want to be financially successful, you get into, you know, that's why people are talking about how many likes, how many hits you got. You know, it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with how many listeners or how many or how good you play. There are people that don't do anything well that have people following them all over the world. I mean, look at the president of the United States. Right. He's like the worst president in the history of mankind. And he <laughs> has so many followers on Twitter. That's incredible. You know, when I grew up, there used to be a thing called biography. It was a, 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 a 30 minute show uh, called biography that was hosted by the legendary, the late, Mike Wallace, the father mm -hmm. of Chris Wallace on Fox News. Mike Wallace, as you may know, remember him from 60 Minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> but he was a great uh, news reporter, correspondent, journalist. And he was the host of this show called Biography. And it would come on every Sunday night, I believe it was Sunday night. And you would want to listen, watch it because it was always a program about a great legendary, groundbreaking human being. Mm -hmm. I think Whether it was A&E, right? Well, it was rebroadcast oh, on A&E. This was way, yeah. way before there was A&E. Yeah. It was uh, biography. But well, I'm, I'm going to get to this A&E thing in a second. So, um, you know, you'd have an episode of, you know, Jackie Robinson, an episode of, Rocky Marciano or something, you know, Martin Luther King or Thurgood Marshall, you know, or General Patton or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you know, some, you know, you name it, you know, whether, you know, and, and some legendary person who came up with some great invention, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And you would look to aspire to do something as lofty as these people are. They were inspirations. Right. 
right? And it was like that. Then the new version of biography, which is on A&E, which is what you're talking about, comes out, right? Mm-hmm. Years, maybe 20 years after the original had actually ended, right? So it gets retooled, and it's called Biography. And I think they even became a biography channel there for a while. I don't know if mm-hmm. it exists anymore, but yeah, biography, A&E's new version of biography. And this thing is like, you don't have to be a person that is inspired to do anything positive. You can be a serial killer, a rapist, or whatever. If you do something egregious enough that made headlines, you can have a biography. So now there's, there's you know, a biography on what on David Chapman, you know, the guy who killed John Lennon. The, right. You know, the, the biography on Ted Bundy. You know, Crazy. a biography on the son of Sam. You know, <laughs> like, you know, because they were so horrible at what they did. They were so, they were such evil, you know, people, but they got, they got these headlines and they were famous. So this is what it's turned into, is my point. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, it's just about publicity, you know, for people, right. unfortunately. So you have people who don't do things that well that have a lot of people following them mm-hmm. because they're just hell-bent on, on that, on just, you know. Um, so unfortunately, <clears throat> that, that, and, and that is what record companies have turned to. And, and, you know, there used to be a thing called artist and repertoire, the A&R department, where you would develop an artist, get their tunes, that's where the repertoire word comes in, and develop an artist's sound and their ability to perform live and in the studio and come up with everlasting artists. Now, what an A&R department does is they they kind of, um, they go to your social media right away to see if you have any followers. If you don't have any followers, you won't even get a listen. Right. That's right. the craziest freaking thing in the world. It is. That's insane. But what, That's so what about, totally what about drummers? Is it, do you think it's the same with drummers? Like how are, you know, how can a drummer make it? How can a 20 year old drummer start to build a career as a music, as a musician? Because what the way that you did it, you can't do it anymore. Right. Well, I mean, like, I mean, now you have your career that's established, and you have all these legacy artists that you work with. But if you were twenty, well, what, what I would do, I would do certain things. You have to do the same if you want to want to be uh, timeless in your approach. You have to know your history, mm-hmm. so you have to listen to all the great stuff that happened before you. Develop a sound, you know. You 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 know. Yeah, obviously, you you kind of emulate your heroes in the beginning until you develop your own sound. Certain things will never change. If you want to be a really good musician, it doesn't matter whether if you're a drummer, bass player, whatever, you know, whatever instrument you play. Second of all, I would say play more than the drums. I would recommend a drummer to learn about another instrument because how you play the drums affects how somebody else plays their instrument. Mm -hmm. So you need to know the cause and effect scenario. Right. Uh, the other thing is I would also learn about recording and know all the, have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. 
you know, because you can't be, you don't want to be dependent on somebody to get you a sound or, you know, your knowledge of music or whatever. You don't want to do that. You want to know as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you to do the work. Speaking of doing the work and developing your own sound, how did, how did you develop your sound? And well, I mean, we talked, you know, about feel and, 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 uh, and <coughs> choices and things like that, which I'm, I'm guessing that you played along with records all the time and tried to figure it out. Uh, but, but the thing is you sound like Steve Jordan and no one else sounds like you. And I think a lot of people try to emulate you and try to sound like you. How did you develop that sound? What did the, what did the practice room look like for you? Well, I'm an amalgamation of all of my favorite players. And then, as I grew up as a human being and developed as a mature person, I became more in touch with my inner self and, and how I wanted to sound. And, how, so, and I wanted it to be an expression of my feeling. I, I wanted the, the drums and my music making ability to be and all one thing, not like, oh, now I'm going to play. No, it's like, it doesn't matter what I've been doing. If I wake up, get out of bed, I can just roll over onto the drums and start to play the way I would like to play. And that's a dream, you know, to be able to get to that point. And it, it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, but it's well worth it. As I say, they're in, I, I, I say, you know, being a musician, an artist or whatever is a pre-existing condition. You, if you really love it, then you have no choice about your, um, whether you're going to do it or not. You, you live and breathe it, so you, you can't live without it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you have committed yourself to the ups and downs of being a musician. Right. <clears throat> right. You know, and there's some real high highs and there can be some deep lows, you know. But if you're really into it, if you're really committed and you're really, then it's like anything else. You just got to ride it out. It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices. So that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about dream symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is. The typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly. So when you tighten down one lug, it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side. That's why you have to tune it diagonally. But now with the new Sonicleer Edge from Mapex, that's a thing of the past. The Sonicleer Edge allows the head to sit flush. So it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonicleer Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. 
one of the things that always stands out to me about your playing is how you have this this understated vibe about you while you're playing and you don't play a lot of fills you're not flying around the kit you're not doing all this other stuff but you could you know you could put something that you play on you could put a video of you playing on for 15 minutes and it'll groove the whole time it it changes but ever so slightly and it has all these nuances inside of that uh and and now you know you look at a lot of the stuff that we see on online and even on records and things like that and and it's completely the opposite of that. Um, did it take you some time to develop that that restraint in your play? I remember you saying like you played on the Blues Brothers record and you felt like you played way too many notes. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the first things that comes to mind. I mean, you know, when I played with the Brecker Brothers and Blues Brothers and all the brothers, I played too much. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime there was a brother around, I was playing too much. You know? um, was in the, you, know, you were in the Funk yeah, Brothers. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, brother. <laughs> you know. Well, see, when I grew up, when I was gonna, one of my heroes was Billy Cobham. Mm-hmm. Right? So, in fact, at my high school graduation, he was the uh, alumni speaker. We, we graduated from Carnegie Hall. Billy Cobham was the alumni speaker. And I'll never forget it. He comes in. <clears throat> the ceremony starts. You have all these chairs on the dais, and one is empty. You know, where's Billy Cobb? He's not there. You know, but, and the ceremony starts, and we're there. And then all of a sudden, white suit, pink shirt, and a Halliburton briefcase. <laughs> he comes strolling down the center aisle at Carnegie Hall, and he hits the stage, and we all go crazy. It's Billy Cobb. <laughs> And he gives his speech and everything, and then he leaves. It was unbelievable. I said that. That's you know. But I was a big, you know. Look, I was the first record I ever played on was a fusion record. Mm-hmm. It was a guy named Michael Urbaniak from Poland, electric violinist. His wife was Ursula Dudziak, who was a singer. They were kind of the Polish version of Ayerto, and you know, you know, and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know it was kind of like that was the time fusion so you had John Luke Ponte and my original Return of Forever Larry Coriel and 11th House Weather Report and Weather Report <clears throat> I didn't really consider Weather Report as a fusion group because they were more like a really open new jazz sounding thing. They weren't really fusion. Fusion mm-hmm. to me was like, well, I later dubbed it confusion, but, um, <laughs> but you know, in the beginning of, of, of fusion, there were a lot of, you know, songs were based on like, first of all, everything was in seven. Okay. Right. That, that was the first thing. You couldn't write a, a fusion song if it wasn't in seven. So I learned I learned how to play in seven, like you know, like you couldn't breathe if you couldn't play in seven. This is like back in the day, I guess. After take five, every every jazz person had to learn how to play in five. You know, right? I guess before that, everybody had to learn how to play a waltz, but not mark the not mark the one in a waltz, which is like the no no in jazz. You know, mm-hmm. I remember one time I was uh, at a club underage. 
it was this great club downtown, jazz club called Boomers. And I was there uh, with my mentor, Freddie Waits. He was my teacher. Mm-hmm. And he brought me to the club, you know. And I think Junior Cook was playing. I know Junior Cook was playing. I think Kenny Barron was on piano. Gene Perla was on bass. And I believe Billy Higgins was playing the drums, right? Hmm. And then Dawood, as his name was, you know, Freddie says uh, to Junior, let the kids sit in. I want the kids to sit in, you know, because they're all showing me the rules. You're talking about, like, they throw me up on the stage and uh, they call all blues, you know, which is a which is in three. Mm-hmm. But in jazz, you don't want to mark the one. You know, that's like that's like remedial playing. You know what I mean? But I was so nervous. <laughs> and, you know, my whole thing was I was playing funk and R&B. I could play it as a, my jazz playing. I was playing in the jazz, a big band, which is all written out because I started as a, a classical player so I could read. So I could play all this stuff. But I was getting still getting my act together as far as playing quote unquote jazz right you know in a free form so i was so nervous i was marking the one the entire time instead of being able to play through the thing it was so oh god anyway so (laughs) as you know so you know so like getting back to playing in seven when i was uh so with michael urbaniak you know i've been listening to People that played before me with our Baniac. The record, as I got the I got the gig, the record before I my, the record that I made with Michael, Steve Gadd and Anthony Jackson that played on, and it was just a remarkable record. I mean, the two of them, two of them together, was always amazing. The way they both played together it was just wonderful, and I knew that record like the back of my hand, and everything, and I think everything on that freaking thing was in seven. And uh, and so I wanted to bring a groove element. Not that Steve wasn't grooving, because he was. You know that. You know, no matter what time Steve was, you was playing. Right. But I, I um I wanted to bring a more R and B kind of element to it. So I learned how to. I developed a thing where I could play through seven, so that I didn't always mark the one in the seven. You know, like right. Everything you know, Return of Forever, Eleventh House, everything, all the seven stuff was always like that, you know, kind of marking. And it was written, the music was written that way. It wasn't the drummer's fault or anything. It was like, the music was always written that way. Either there was a line that was in seven or, you know, Mahavishnu, everything, you know, was like in seven, basically. Right, right. That was crazy. So I tried to play through the seven. <clears throat> and that was the beginning of me trying to bring some of the stuff that I like musically into this world of basically over overzealous thinking, mm-hmm. you know, of playing this type of stuff, you know. Um, but, you know, I did, you know, I learned all the fills, you know, all that. <laughs> I played all of that, you know, until one day I just, it wasn't me. I just didn't, I, I wasn't playing, I was playing like somebody else was playing myself. What do I want to play? Well, I want to play more like Ringo and Tony together and Benny and all these people. And I started to just not care about what other people thought about what I was doing. Oh, man. that's Like so, there was that's a looseness. 
there was a looseness to the playing that I like. It wasn't always so tight and strict and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? There was some kind of thing that, the, uh, you know, this, this looseness, as I call it, loose but tight. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like loose and make you feel good, but it was still, we knew what we were doing. We knew exactly what we were doing. Yeah. But we were just doing it, keeping it loose and, and groovy, you know? And then, and then one of my favorite, so I, I'm thinking about all this stuff as I'm getting closer and closer to my personality as a player. And then I saw uh, a clip of probably one of my favorite drummers in the world. His name, he just died this past year. It's a tragic thing. His name was Albert Woody Woodson. Mm-hmm. He played uh, on a lot of great records. So he played with Otis Redding. Mm-hmm. He played with Otis Redding before the bar case. Now he played on like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, uh, Otis's version, and Satisfaction, Otis's version. Mm-hmm. But he also played on one of my favorite recordings of all time, which is a record that really influenced my playing a great deal. It's the Isley Brothers' It's Your Thing. He played drums on that. And if you listen to that record, you'll, you'll hear a lot of what I do on that. Uh, if you listen to that record, you, you could, you know, say that that could have been me if, you know, cause I listened to that record like a million times a day for, right. you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he played with Otis. If you Google uh, Otis Redding, ready, steady, go, which was an English television uh, show. And he does an appearance there where he's the host of the show and he's the special guest of the show. <clears throat> also, Eric Burden from The Animals was also on the oh, show nice. as well. At any rate, he's got his band there, uh, Otis, and you can see footage of Albert Woodson playing and you not only can see him, hear him, and it's remarkable. And uh, when I ran into this, now this was recorded in I would say 66, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's black and white. It's a remarkable thing. But when I first saw it, it was probably 1980, 81 or something like that. But when I saw it, it changed my life. I said, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's where I, that's me. I, I thought, see, here's a weird thing. Okay, so you talk about some weird stuff. So, you know, Carl Cunningham was the drummer in the bar case who died in the plane crash with Otis Redding. So I didn't really know what Carl looked like, but there is footage of Carl. Obviously, they did that television right before they got on the plane. They did that TV show right before they got on the plane and died. So there is footage of him. Uh, I think On the the night that they did Ready, Steady, Go? No, no, no. Uh, later, I'm talking about later, Carl Cunningham was at, is seen on the television show with Otis right before the crash. But um, but um, when I first saw this footage of Albert Woodson, I thought that that might have been Carl Cunningham and that now, <laughs> this is going to sound wild, but now I am like 
like Carl Cunningham, like reincarnated or something because I could relate to Albert Woodson so much, but I didn't know it was Albert Woodson. I thought it was Carl Cunningham. So, you know, so I was like, oh my God, he's come back in in me. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Because I knew exactly what he was doing and what he wanted to do. And it just freed me up and changed my life. I didn't find out till later that it wasn't Carl Cunningham, but it was this guy, Albert Woodson, and who was just a remarkable player. And I got to actually uh, kind of befriend Albert. And uh, I think I talk about him in a modern drummer um, uh, uh, issue. I don't know which one, but it was several years ago. And I also did a thing because he had had lost uh, a foot to diabetes. And uh, Mm -hmm. so uh, we did some stuff to some fundraising for him a few years back, but he was, and he, um, he was very close to Otis and he was really important to Otis and if you that that record whiskey and uh, Otis and whiskey a go go and everything, that drumming is phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, and so he was a big inspiration before I even knew he was an inspiration. You know, I didn't know who the guy was. I just knew you know that kind of thing. You know, sometimes you have an affinity to somebody's playing, or it gives you a gateway of what you can do, or or right. feel comfortable about doing. You right. know. He, he made me feel comfortable about being who I wanted to be instead of this other thing. Mm-hmm. He freed me up. You know, I, I'm gonna, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, so when I was in college, I saw a video of you playing on your DVD or on your VHS mm-hmm. at the time. Right. Um, and, and I watched it. And, or I saw a clip of you playing. You were demonstrating some of the tunes that you played with Sheryl Crow. Right. And I said, I was watching, I'm in college, you know, I'm mm-hmm. trying to get as good as I can. And I right. watch this deep and I watch you play. And this is exactly what I said. And I've told this story many times and I, mm-hmm. I hesitated whether I was going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> and I watched you and I said, I don't get it. I was like, it's not, I said, it doesn't really do anything for me. I said, I can play right. that. You know, I'm a young, naive college kid. I'm like, ah, this, I, this Steve Jordan guy, whatever. I mean, I guess he can play. Right. 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 So as I went down the, the, rabbit hole of like trying to develop my own sound and all these things uh i somehow came back to you and and somehow had a a fresh set of ears of everything and literally watched all the same videos and was like this guy is a genius and all the stuff that he's playing in all of all of these tracks and all the stuff that he's playing is perfect and I, and as I started to develop my sound, it was like, all I want to do is play like Steve Jordan, right? But no, it took but me a long time to get there. I, that's the whole thing, see? So how do you shorten that thing. learning curve for everyone else? Well, you might, you can't, you, you know, everybody has their own path. You, you, some things can't get shortened. <laughs> but what, what I say in that DVD, I really mean, simplicity is not stupidity. Yeah. And that the whole thing is, when, and that's why I talk about constructive ego and destructive ego. Constructive ego is like when, and I say this all the time, when, you, when you're the pilot of the plane and you know you can take the plane off and you can land the plane, that's constructive ego. Destructive ego is like, 
oh, yeah, you think you're all that and whatever, and then you crash because you're so full of yourself that right. you, can't, you can't fail, okay? Right. And, and so I, it took me a minute to go, look, I don't need to want to play all that stuff. I don't want to play all of that stuff. That doesn't make me a better player. I want to serve the music. Mm-hmm. I'm not serving myself. This is not like I'm playing on somebody's record, but I'm really going, hi, mom. Right. I want to play my lick here and this. I'm going to show everybody else that I'm so bad. I'm going to play this thing here. It has nothing to do with the music. How can you, how can you dictate what you're going to play on a song before you even hear the song? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's just crazy. A beat then. then it's just a box. It's, it's a beat. And, and that and then it goes to, to what I say. So, like, I used to think, and this was a really big turning point for me. There's before, let's say, BB and, and BB. Like, before <laughs> the beat. And then, but, you know, I used to think, as a young drummer, like, I'd go into a session, get ready for a session. I'd be practicing or whatever. And I'd say, okay. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to play this beat on the, on a tune, whatever. I haven't even heard the tune. <laughs> I don't know what the music is, gonna, but I'm going to force this beat on one of these songs today on this session, you know, because this is a badass beat. I'm going to play this. <laughs> right. What kind of craziness is that? It has nothing to do with anything. How can you do that? But that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make any sense. It's not right. And it's not musical. Music is a universal language. Our job is, we're ambassadors of goodwill. Our job is to make people feel good, to get the music across, to get the message of the music across, not to get your ego across. If it, if it means that I just go boom, bat, boom, bat for 40 hours and the music comes out great and that's it, then mm-hmm. that's it. And I'd argue that's harder to do than playing inverted paradiddles at 200 beats a minute. And that's the, the other thing. It is harder to do. Because every time I go to a clinic and I say, okay, just play this and don't do anything else but that, nobody can do it. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 but there's nothing better than doing that. And let me tell you, when you really get into it and you, since you've discovered it, you know what I'm talking about. Because <clears throat> when you're manipulating the time, and then as you get deeper into it, you know what, like by Michael Jordan used to say, I got into this groove and the, 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 and the basket seemed like an ocean. Yeah. Like it was so big, I couldn't miss. Well, yeah. that's the whole thing. When you hit the pocket right, in the pocket, the quarter note, the, 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 the distance between two quarter notes is so large. And then you can just sit right in there and you can manipulate the time and the space when you hit the, when you hit the drum, the, like the snare drum, and then the space, the air, that before, and then you hit the bass drum, and then with the cymbal, you can hear all the air. The deeper you get into it, you can feel and hear the molecules of air and space. It's remarkable. It's really, really, really special. And that gives you a tingle, and that's the music. Mm-hmm. And that gives the whole music a tingle. You know, as I play, as I play, even if I'm not producing a record that I'm playing on, I'm producing it because I'm producing the drum part. Mm-hmm. I know what, what, what. You know, look, I've been like I said, I've been listening to records since I was two years old. 
what do you hear on the record? What from from I would say from the forties to now, what what are the things that you notice about a record? First, what's the well, I'm asking you a question. What what's the first thing you know about notice about a record? What are the give me three things that you notice about a record first? Uh probably the tempo. Okay. The, um the snare drum mm -hmm. and uh and the bass. Okay, that's great. And those are three great answers. So basically what does Steve Jordan they, hear though? Well well no, but this is the, the things that make records. But when record makers were, you know, especially in the sixties when you were really making when the when the height of pop records being made, you know, like mm -hmm. <clears throat> what's the thing that you have to do? The air air candy, as they call it. Okay. Right. The air candy in the record. The backbeat, all right? What you know, it's just like you was to come up with a dance for the newest record. You know, you every there was a there was always a new dance to go with a new record song right. or whatever like that. So it was always about the tempo, like you said. You, you know, 120 was a very favorite tempo because mm -hmm. it was supposed to be the heartbeat, people's heartbeat. So, you know, so that's your dance tempo, 120, right? And then the backbeat, bam. So you got two of the three. And then, you know, sometimes it was a line, a bass line, could be a bass line, could be, you know, uh, the melody, the top line, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then a the vocal sound. So it's the backbeat. The vocal sound, the air candy up there, the thing up top, but that tempo and the backbeat, all right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. So those are the majority of, of, of the thing that makes a record is based on the drums, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, you, so, that, that, so that, what, when you're recording a record, what is that what you're listening for? Are you listening for the baseline? Are you listening for the melody, a combination of both? Like, how I'm are you serving the song the most? I'm letting the song tell me what to do. The song is going to tell me what to play. Right. And, and then, and now if I'm a producer, then I, a lot of the times when somebody plays me a song, like when, when people ask me, to produce their material or whatever, I never ask for produced demos. Mm -hmm. I say, if you can give me the clear, the most stripped down version, just an acoustic guitar or piano and a vocal or whatever, I don't want to hear your production of the song before I get to produce the song. Right. Let right. me interpret what I think the song will sound like. Because I hear songs, like I hear a record when I hear a song. Right. You know, because mm -hmm. I've been listening to records my whole life. So, like, I just hear a record. I don't, you know, so that's how I approach the thing. So when you so, say you let the music dictate what you play, if I'm a guy who's never, never recorded in a, in a session before, I'm a good drummer, have never recorded in a session, I go and sit down, and you're like, just let the music tell you what to do. What, what should I be listening to? What should I be... You're listening to uh, the first thing you got to get in tune with the feel. So you have to, first of all, you have And the to reason why it. I ask is because everyone's no, always right. like, let the music dictate it and serve the song. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? Right. That, well, that means that you have to lose your inhibitions. You have to be, there's this level of confidence. And this is constructive ego. Mm -hmm. you, you, the drummer is the captain of the ship, is the drive. You're driving the bus, baby. So you can't be timid. 
So mm-hmm. when you're listening to the song and let the song dictate to you to put the play, doesn't mean that you are tentative, not at all, because then you then you lose, you know, you, you're going to lose your, the grip on the situation. Right. But but you want to get, you want to put your heart and soul into your interpretation of whatever you play. Mm-hmm. So once you get the tempo, whatever, and you're feeling something, just play something simple. Listen. Nothing is more important than listening. That's what we're not doing here. And, and that's not what, that's, that's the main point of the reason why the world is in such disarray. Nobody's listening to one another. Yeah. You got to listen. Listen to what they're saying. So- oh, so if you hear a little line and maybe a, a turnaround goes over here, maybe a thing, but what is the pulse of the song? What is it saying? That'll tell you what beat to play. And you can never lose by just playing the simplest thing in the world until further notice. Mm-hmm. And then yep. if somebody says, can you put a fill here leading into the chorus? Sure, you can do that. Yeah. Or can you do this? I'm feeling a little, can you do a little syncopation here? You know, you're open to suggestions. You know, you're open, especially to the composer. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> and, uh, but you, but you want to make it feel good. And that means you have to trust yourself, your inner self, your heartbeat. You know, you got to trust yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the main thing. Don't be tentative. Don't, don't, I'm not saying be overconfident. I'm just saying don't be tentative. Go with what you believe in, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that will help you. That will, that will definitely help you. I always say you don't know what you don't know. And that's the, I, I hear that from younger players too, where they're like, oh, I played this thing on this record and it was really happening. And you listen to it and you're like, yeah, this, this ain't happening. This is, you're either overplaying, <laughs> you know, like you're either overplaying or your tempo's all over the place or, you know, what's, what do you do when you, when you don't, when you think you're playing all this hip stuff and you're not? Well, you, that, that, the other thing is was very funny is the difference between playing live and then playing in a, in a recording studio is massive. A lot of kids, you know, especially get a rude awakening. Yeah. You know, they're thinking they're playing all this stuff in their room or in the gig, and then they get in the studio and they've been playing the same stuff, and it's terrible. <laughs> the other thing is, the other thing is, uh, well, I remember the first time when I played in the studio where the drum sounded completely different from when I was sitting behind the drums and playing in the studio. And when I went in the control room, I did not recognize anything. I didn't recognize the throw of the beat. I didn't recognize anything because the guy was using Keypex gating things mm-hmm. on my drums. So it actually changed the pulse of what I was doing, changed the, the, decay of the drums changed the attack everything i didn't recognize so once i knew that that's what the guy was doing then i had to reapproach how i was playing mm-hmm. to for it to feel right but i mean so there are all of these things that happen in the studio that's so much different than playing live yeah i mean that that's a whole nother discussion you know the difference between i mean everybody wants to try to um uh, diminish the differences between the two, but there are some big differences between the two. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean that's why you it have was a rude awakening for me, and and I've recorded yeah, yeah. one one thousandth of the amount of records that you have. But it it took me it took me a long time to get comfortable in the studio because I would play something and I'd come back in. I'm like, oh, it sounds like shit. Yeah, you know, I'm it's, rushing it's or bragging thing. or right, and you don't hear it, you know, and it's really, and that's why what I would do. Uh, my advice to younger musicians is uh, not only listen to everything, but tape yourself. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you could swear that you're playing certain ways and then you play it back and it's not what you thought you were doing. (laughs) And that's a real, if I had done that early on, like if I had known that that was a thing, I could have maybe gotten to where I got a little sooner, you know, but I really didn't know. Yeah. You know, I didn't know because you don't hear yourself. That's why on sessions, I would do this thing which nobody wanted me to do, but I was relentless. So I was such a pest as a kid in the studio that they would let me do it. But I would always insist, can you give me, can I get a tape of the tracks? I would just take tracks home and listen to the tracks. I didn't care. I didn't need a vocal, but right, I would right. just love to listen to the tracks and dig the tracks, especially if I thought the session was good. But, you know, just to, like, to get into recording. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know? You know? Yeah, sit- can I get the tracks? Yeah. When you sit down and just play the drums, whether it be at a clinic or just you walk into a drum shop and you sit down and play or you're at your house and you just want to kind of groove for a little bit, uh, every, everything I've ever heard you play by yourself, it sounds musical. It, it, it has a pulse. It has, you know, there's dynamics and all that stuff going on. Are, what are you hearing? That are you hearing melodies, or are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. melodies. I'm singing stuff to myself, whether it's bass or whether I'm just maybe even even just really focusing on the the sounds of the drums. You know, drums. It's very funny. My love for drums. It came full circle from like. The first time I ever sat behind a kid, I just loved looking at the mechanisms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where it was a point in the 80s when I was, became more of a songwriter and I was programming drums and just playing a lot of guitar and bass and not really wanting to play the drums. I got really tired of the drums for a minute. Just I just got into programming drum beats when I was writing songs, which actually helped me become a better drummer because I became more of a composer, more of a composer on the drums. Right. So right. I wasn't just playing drums. I was playing meaningful stuff on the drums, more right. meaningful than before. And then, um, you know, and then I came back to playing the drums and then I fell in love with the drums all over again. The sounds of the drums, the mechanism, you know, looking at the hi-hats and all this. Stuff. And I am such a vintage drum creep, freak. Geek, (laughs) that you know every kit you know there's so many beautiful kits out there you know and and these and the sound of the drums and all the different drum makers that had their own great unique take on on the instrument and Mm -hmm. and they all have something to offer you know Mm -hmm. and um so i was uh reacquainted with my love for the drums Again, like basically in like the mid to late eighties, you know. Yeah. About the mid mid eighties, really. Hmm. You know, and then um 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad that happened. <laughs> so am I. Yeah, yeah, I could I could talk to you forever. I have a couple. More. I want to be cognizant of your time. I don't want to I don't want to take up too much yeah. time. I got a couple more questions for you quickly. Cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, my my take on the whole social media and and how it's affected drummers is now everything is chops driven and everyone is just playing a thousand notes a minute, and I I don't rag on it because I think that I don't think people are doing it purposely. I think that they're misguided and they think that this, like you said, they don't realize what's important. What do you say to people out there who are younger, who are putting things online and it's, and it, everything they focus on is just playing a thousand beats a minute. What do you tell them to sort of steer them in the right direction or give them some guidance? Well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you can sound like an old fogey if you tell people, oh, you know, that's not important. You know, right. let people have to go through what they go through. And I can tell you that some of that playing is just not going to stand the test of time. It's just not. Mm-hmm. So everybody's allowed to go through their thing, you know. Like I said, you know. I hear stuff that I did when I was younger that I wish I had never played. I wish I had played so differently on so many records. I can't tell you. Yeah. Um, but I had to go through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, getting back to the Blues Brothers, if I had known, if I had, if I had been aware of the genius of Fred Bilo and Earl Palmer and, 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 um, you know, some of the other great blues drummers, um, Earl Phillips, um, you know, uh, uh, Abby Hardy, you know, uh, even uh, Big Sick Catlett, you know. Mm-hmm. If I had been really aware, um, more fully aware of their playing when I was 19 years old, I think I would have played a little differently on the Blues Brothers record, and it still would have been good. Right now, the the whole thing about the Blues Brothers record was that it was a combination. It was my contemporary take on the stuff that made it plausible for the day with playing with these legends who played on some of the original stuff. That was part of the yin and the yang that made it work. Now, I'm not right. denying that. It's just that it's some of it is kind of hard to listen to <laughs> from my perspective. You know, it's the 40th anniversary of the Blues Brothers. I can't even believe it. You know, it's like, what? You know, it seems like it was just yesterday. Um, and uh, and some of it is good, you know, like, and, uh, but some of it, uh, well, for some of it, I just can't. First of all, the tempos are freaking nuts. Um, I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. I'm a soul man. Got what I got. You know, it's like, holy freaking cow, you know. But that led to an exciting show. And, you know, look. Exciting shows, you know, when James Brown played an exciting show, the tempos were always eight times the freaking 
Yeah. You know, uh, the record. You know I mean, I mean, some then, of those songs, I'm like, I don't even know how they played it that fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's totally, like, you know, so. It sounds, yeah. like, it sounds like you're listening to the record on, or you listen to it on double. Yeah, speed. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, that's why he needed two drummers sometimes, you know. Just to <laughs> Somebody get, take a break. He had to go between Jabbo and Trinkin and Clyde just to, you know, get through the show, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's only one. There's only one of them up there, you know. So I was like, "Damn!" <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're 19 years old, they expect you. Okay, yeah, you got it. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're a kid. How old? Um, how old were you with when the uh, when the infamous Letter, Letterman show happened? How, how old were you then? Um, I think I was probably about 22, 23, something like that. And for people who don't know, there's a, James Brown was on uh, the David Letterman show and came on to play. And then there were supposed to be other guests on the show and they just canceled the other guests and James just played the rest of the night. Like just turned it right. into a concert, right? Yeah, well, that was in July of uh, 82. That was the first season of the show. And we had been waiting, every individual in the band, meaning... Hiram Bullock, Will Lee, Paul Schaefer, myself. We had been waiting our whole lives to play with James Brown. So we were on it. Mm. Now, we played, we ended up playing three songs with James. We only rehearsed one song at the sound check. But he took over the show, as you said. Now, it was basically the highlight of the Letterman show, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, for me, it was the highlight, and that was the first year. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, now I'm here. What am I gonna do? Okay, you know, it's not gonna get. It's only any downhill better. from now. <laughs> exactly. It's, there's no way it can get any better than this. I mean, I'm done. I'm already done. This is crazy. It's the first year. I'm already done. And a special thanks to Mr. James Brown. Here he is once again, ladies and gentlemen, James Brown. <laughs> dressing room and he's sitting under a hairdryer like it's the crown you know <laughs> and and Al Sharpton who was like his surrogate son slash bodyguard slash whatever is behind the hairdryer who has the same hairdo as James Brown at the time <clears throat> and he gets up from the hairdryer and he, he, he comes in and he hugs me he says brother he said, brother, you're high. And I'm like saying to myself, I'm not high. What are you talking about? He said, your energy, your energy is high. I said, oh, thank you. He said, this is the best show I've done in front of cameras since the Tammy show. Now, no, 
that is the craziest freaking thing that that first of all for people who don't know the tammy show <clears throat> was this great movie that was made uh it was a live concert with people like Chuck Berry, the Rolling Stones, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes. It had the Wrecking Crew with a rhythm section, the live show with people like Darlene Love in the background singing. You know, everybody was on it. The Ronettes, you name it. Jan and Dean, um, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, you know, mm -hmm. and James Brown. And James Brown's performance is now, you got to remember, when you're a kid, you see him James Brown for the first time, and the first time you see him is in the movie theater. So he's larger than life. And he gives this performance. He does, uh, uh, he does, uh, he does, he performs Out of Sight, which is one of my favorite James Brown songs. Mm -hmm. But he, he uh, all culminates in a version of Please, Please, Please. And of course, we know that the whole thing with the cape and the whole thing. Yeah. And now when you're a kid and you're seeing this for the very first time, you, you, this is for real and you don't know what's going on, but people are going crazy and he's, he's looks like he's freaking out and having a nervous breakdown and he can't be controlled because he's so passionate about the music and the person he's singing about. And you've never seen anything like it. And the people in the audience are going crazy. These girls are screaming. You don't know what's going on. And it's one of the most legendary performances of all time. So now, afterwards, he's more of a sensation than before, because this is the first time the whole world has seen him. So now he's on every television show, and he's doing all this stuff. He's on Ed Sullivan, and he's on this, and he's on that, and everything. And the band he has is always tight. The JBs, the Famous Flames, they're always tight, no matter what configuration of the band is. He's got them, the military operation as far as the tightness of the band. Right. So I have seen numerous incredible television performances of James Brown. So when he says to me, this is the best show I've done in front of camera since the Tammy show, it took me about 25, 30 years to figure out what he meant. Because that went from listening to that show every day after we did it to as I became even more and more entrenched in the world of James Brown um, going, well, maybe it's not what we thought it was and, and, and dissecting all of his other bands. And one of my favorite uh, James Brown bands was uh, the one when Bootsy and Catfish came into the band mm -hmm. uh, in 71. And so, um, and that band was incredible with, uh, you know, with, Catfish and, and Cheese and on guitar, the two guitar players and 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 Jabbo. Um, but you know, it's like 
and then and then it finally dawned on me what what he meant. He was so spontaneous in the show, and the audience reacted in such a spontaneous fashion that it made him do things that he had never done before. Mm. So if you watch the version of Sex Machine, which was the first song that we played with him, he gets he you know he runs to the piano, which is on the record, but he didn't rehearse it at soundcheck. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we're playing the song. He says, "Can I play? Can I play?" And he runs over to the piano, and he plays the iconic piano solo that he played on the record. Then he runs back in, and then toward the end, on the last chorus, uh, when on the last bridge, um, he scats. He's never scatted before, ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's scatting. Like, I mean, so he was completely out of his thing. It took him into another thing. Yeah. And he, the band moved him so much. And I had the opportunity, I mean, that was the great St. Clair Pickney on tenor saxophone. And Holly Ferris was from Nashville, who was alive and well today. We, don't, we no longer have St. Clair with us, but Holly's doing fine in Nashville. And, uh, you know, it was just an incredible thing. So that's what he meant. He meant that he was so spontaneous. All these other performances with the bands that he had, these great bands, he knew what he expected out of them. He had a thing, you know, right. and they were going to do this and they were going to do this on my command. But this wasn't his band. Yeah. So he had yeah. to trust us. And then once he felt confident with us, then he went somewhere that he hadn't gone in a very, very, very long time. Yeah. So by the time we got to there was a time we didn't rehearse that. We had no idea what he was going to do. He didn't know what we were going to do. And then, then going into a commercial break, he heard us go, play I Got the Feeling. He was like, oh, you play that too? <laughs> and then it was like, yeah. And so then we ended up closing the show when I Got the Feeling. You know? Nice. Yeah. Nice. I love yeah. it. Yeah. You've, seen, I mean, you've, been, you've been part of legendary performances, records, things like that. If, you, if someone said you can only leave one recording of yourself behind, which one is it? Ooh. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, I really don't. No. Um, I, you know I it's not know, the Blues Brothers know. record. That we know. <laughs> uh, I really don't know. I mean, I mean, I love a lot of the, I mean, there's some, I don't know, man. I, 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 you know. Yeah. I do like, um, I'm very fortunate uh, to play with, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to be in this band called The Verbs, mm-hmm. and I love making Verbs records. Uh, and, you know, songs like I'm Your Chocolate and stuff like that, Silent Man, I love, I love those records. Um, Burnout Star, stuff like that. I like of John Schofield stuff. Mm-hmm. The John Schofield, Ray Charles record. There's a song called Busted. I really, really like. 
Um, of course, I like a lot of stuff on Continuum, no doubt about that. Mm, um, great record. I feel like um, every drummer, every drummer should have to take vultures and just like just play that and, and learn how to groove. Just and that, that was inspired. Record. That was inspired by Al Jackson. You know. Yeah. Um, the try. So the the try record is amazing. The try record. The try record was very. Uh, I mean, that was a talk about you know, the love of doing the thing. We, um, <laughs> John, this is so John. So John, like, basically we were playing, we were making continuum. We were having a good time making it. And then one thing led to another. And he was like, you know, when Pino, John and I started playing, there was a very special thing. And he was like, why don't we just do a band? <clears throat> I said, yeah, we can, yeah, let's, you know, but you can do both. You can, you, you know, you don't have to give up your solo career to do a band. You can do both. You can have a band and do your solo career. Right. So he said, bet. So then all of a sudden he, one thing leads to another. And I think he announced that we're going to go on tour with John Mayer Trio. And it was so popular that the tour sold out like in five seconds. We didn't have any material. <laughs> we didn't know. We had never played. As a meeting, that's why there's, that is why they're, they're the same songs on Try and Continuum. Like, that's why Gravity's on both records. That's why Vulture's on both records. Got it. You know, <laughs> because we were making Continuum, and then all of a sudden we're out on the road, you know, doing the live thing. Nice. So it was, like, you know, but, you know, we were, we were doing this photo shoot for the thing and then for this tour we like we better start writing something you know the photo shoot can wait we better write some yeah things. yeah yeah <laughs> we look good but the photo shoot it was a high fashion photo shoot we got all this stuff <laughs> it was crazy man it was crazy but That's you know fun. we did this photo shoot i said man we we gotta write something man we gotta come on we gotta you gotta, gotta get going here right and then he came up with a thing uh, come when i call which mm -hmm. is only on on uh try it's not on continuum but i love it it's a cute little blues tune and um you know it's it shows off john's ability to write a, a, a good uh cute song in a very short amount of time and it's a unique take on a blues it's not a typical blues shuffle or it has a very unique feel that you know it's very hard to pull off that kind of um, inside type of playing with a trio. Right. And I feel like, you know, the whole thing about a trio, which I think we did very well, is a lot of times you feel compelled to have to overplay to fill up all the space. Right. We didn't do that. You know, mm -hmm. we were still able to play musically and have dynamics and all kinds of stuff as a trio and not feel burdened to have to do all this other stuff to fill up, make a lot of noise. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, was, I always thought John was an interesting character because I don't feel like he got the, the respect that he deserved early on in his career. I mean, I, I started listening to him when the yeah. first record came out and I was like, man, this right. guy's great. And I saw him right. on Letterman, I think, or something like that. And I was like waiting mm -hmm. for it to go, over the edge and be cheesy. And I was like, Oh, this is actually right. cool. And, right. but 
but I felt like for years he he didn't get uh he didn't get the respect that he deserved. Now he does, but I don't think he did early right. in his career for some reason. Well, you know, it's hard to people don't want to believe you when you're when you have that much going for you. There's got to be something wrong, you know. Right. You know, so you know, he's a great player, he's a really great songwriter, he's a good looking guy, you know, he's a funny guy. You got too many pluses going. Something's yeah. got to be wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to give it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, that's the human nature. You know, people are freaking schmucks. You know, they don't want to give it up. You know, it's like, you know, you can't, you can't be all that good. Something's right. wrong with this guy. Yeah, you know right. I mean? There's some smoke and mirrors here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, Steve, uh, like I said, man, I could sit here. I could talk to you forever. And I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Um, two things pleasure, I want to let man. I want to let people know, um, one, that you have a new record that you just came out with, with, uh, yep. with Mixmaster Mike, and it's called Beat Odyssey 2020, that yep. I'll make sure that I link up to in the show notes as well. Uh, if you want to talk about that record, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. It's on. So the, the record button is on. So if you're talking, yeah. I'm here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing about Beat Odyssey 2020 is that it's really based on the core of jazz, which is improvisation. So um, I started working with Mixmaster Mike in 2014. Um, I was uh, the musical director for the Primetime Emmy Awards. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, I had added a DJ to the orchestra, which had never been done before in a prime time kind of situation and it worked out well and then the following year uh, uh right before we uh uh went to engage in the 2014 show uh michael bearden uh who was in the orchestra and my uh co-musical director um said, you know, Steve, I just did the Kennedy Center honors uh, and Herbie Hancock was uh, given a, Ken a Kennedy Center award. And in his segment, <clears throat> there was a DJ named Mixmaster Mike who who did the uh, rocket with us and he's incredible. I think you might dig him. So I had heard of Mike, you know, but I wasn't, you know, be, you know, 100% honest. I wasn't totally you know, in depth with his career or whatever. I knew he worked with, you know, the Beasties and <clears throat> I think 50 Cent or something, but I, I wasn't really totally, you know, completely engaged in his career. So mm -hmm. I just, but I trusted Mike, you know, and uh, so I said, Mike, if you think this, yeah, cool. All right. So we hired him and when he came in and our first time we played, it was remarkable. And what he did for the, um, he just perked up the whole orchestra because nobody had ever heard somebody do what he did, what he does with a turntable before. Right. right. And uh, not only that, he, the, the music he was dropping, you know, because he's in his way a musicologist. So he's like, he's, um, you know, dropping Lee Morgan bombs and 
you know, and digging into, you know, all kinds of stuff that normal DJs just don't do. They don't know this music, you know? Right, right. So, um, so we started playing and it was like, you know, instantaneous groove and he was on fire and he lit us up and everything. And then and my responsibility uh, as a musical director is not only to put the orchestra together and pick the repertoire, especially the music going into bumpers and coming out of commercials and <clears throat> is to supervise the cues and even write some cues for different video packages and stuff. Mm. So um, we uh, had some packages that needed music and I decided that maybe Mike and I would write a couple of cues ourselves, you know, and we went in the studio and we did a couple of cues that came out great. And then we just kept cutting. We just kept cutting. And then we would try to arrange anytime we could to go in the studio and cut more and more. And, and originally when we, we recorded, we thought, okay, we will record a bunch of tracks and then send out to some MCs and rappers and see what they wanted to do with it. And then as we recorded more, we thought, well, this is so cinematic. Maybe we don't want to do that. This is, you know, and then it, very, it became very clear that this was our record and this is right. what we're doing. Right. And, you know, so uh, we've got a lot more where that came from, but this is the first offering of uh, a wealth of material that we have. And, you know, we'll probably get into doing movie scores and, and all kinds of stuff, but it's a, it's a, 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 it's a journey, you know, Beat Odyssey mm -hmm. 2020 is a journey. I wanted it to, you know, have that feeling of exploration, like, uh, you know, Space Odyssey, you know, 2001, you know, right, right. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's basically what it is. It's, it, it takes you on a trip and enjoy the ride. Well, I listen. I've listened to it. I don't know a dozen times or so already. So it's a oh, really? That's yeah, cool. yeah, I love it. I love it. I oh, usually nice. actually like. I usually just put it on and I'll like. I'll be working and I just have it playing. It's nice. Yeah, that's what. That's exactly the point. That's the yeah. whole thing. Have you seen the two videos? No, I didn't no. see the videos. Okay, so we have two videos, um, directed by Annika Marie and produced by Hart Perry. Okay. And one is called The Gospel, and you can go and check that out online, The Gospel. And then the next one uh, with a new single is Meltdown Sequence. And, uh, and then you can find that online as well. And uh, the first one, The Gospel, is uh, my, uh, you know, I dedicated it to the, um, the legacy of nonviolent protests and demonstrations around mm -hmm. the world. And uh, the second video, Meltdown Sequence, is featuring the one and only Salvador Dali, you know, our producer, right. our film producer, Hart Perry, dear friend of mine, award-winning award film pro producer and director, um, years and years ago had shot Dali when Dali was doing do some promotion of some of his work and so we had this raw footage of dolly wow and we mixed it in with some of his work and it's really wild it's that's fun. Awesome. that's melt meltdown sequence so yeah check it out 
I will. And I'll share it up uh, in the, uh, in the show notes for the episode as well. So people can check it out. Cool. So where's the best place for people to follow you online or anything or. Well, I do have an Instagram thing and there's, and there's a, you know, you can find this on JV records, uh, Facebook page and, you know, stuff like that. JV, you know, we got, we have, uh, uh, Robert Crane High Rhythm record on JV. We have all our verbs, you know, three verbs records on JV. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Beat Odyssey record is on JV. Next year, we're going to have a new verbs record, Garage Sale on JV, plus uh, a Tony Joe White record that we started making before Tony Joe White died. So, <clears throat> um, and that's so those two records are going to be uh, heavy records coming in the, in the new year. So, nice. You know, our JV catalog is building quite nicely. I'm very happy mm-hmm. about it. Nice. Well, congratulations yeah. on that. And Thank you. Don't you. Te- you don't teach privately, right? Um, I can. Um, it's it's really based on my schedule. I try. Uh, I don't do it more often because of uh, of my schedule, but it's not out of the question. Got you. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. Well, Steve, yeah. it has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for the countless uh, hours of music that you've put out into this world and you've been an inspiration to me and many drummers around the world and I appreciate you taking the time to chat and your humility and and willingness to share the things that you've learned over the years I I truly it's my pleasure it's my responsibility to share it because it was shared with me so I gotta pass it on man no problem I love doing it I appreciate it we appreciate it and be well take care and uh, hopefully talk to you soon You got it. All right. Thanks again, Steve. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Mr. Steve Jordan, I really, really hope that you dug that. Like I said, this was a bucket list interview for me. I've always wanted to have a conversation with Steve Jordan ever since the first time I ever heard him play on Ramblin' by David Sanborn. I've wanted to have a conversation with him, So, and that was 20-plus years ago. I finally got him on the show, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash 581. Until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. Go into the practice room and, and groove. Do some Steve Jordan stuff. All right. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out Revoice Media.